0: This show includes adult conversations around sometimes sensitive topics. Check the show notes at cxmhpodcast.com for trigger warnings. You're listening to the CXMH podcast with Robert Voore and Steve Austin. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health.
1: Hey, my name. Welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Moore, and I am so glad to be joined today by Pumpernickel Tryptophan,
2: who's uh, driving. Oh, I'm having he's deja driving.
1: vu. Yeah,
3: I am having. Uh, well, deja vu. Yes, but I am driving. Um, I. It is Sunday night right now, uh, even though you are likely listening on Monday, uh, and I am sitting in traffic on 65 North. All of you people who have to actually travel for the holidays, I I feel terrible for you because this is awful. I hate traffic. Uh, It's why I work seven miles from home and don't have to get on the interstate to get there because this is just, this is hell to me. You want to torture me? Put me in traffic. This is it. So if I curse,
1: what do you, uh, do you use all that time to bigger. like listen to podcasts and things uh, that's or, what
3: yep that's or what record I do. them I guess sure yeah
1: we were just talking about hey, right it happy right holidays this. happy holidays that's what yeah. I was going to say we were talking right before this about christmas stuff
3: yeah you yeah. love it
1: i do love it it's uh yeah. it's i know it's like superficial and whatever but there's some. it just like makes me feel like cheery you know like you music going and there's lights everywhere sure. and i don't know it yes. feels Feels like I'm like a little happier, which isn't. I mean, I know that it's a hard time for a lot of people and and whatnot, but I I feel like the like the trees and stuff, like everything is
3: oh yeah. I don't
1: know. Oh, hey, are you getting like a weird noise on your end?
3: Yeah, it's there's this guy in my ear.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, hold on. Let me see if I can. It sounds like. Uh,
3: really. Really? Really. Really? <laughs> My goodness. Wow. Wow. Uh, uh, uh,
1: I would like to point out that I, I I did not trash talk online whatsoever. I don't and even know what decided this. You trash talked really. on Twitter and on Facebook. <laughs> oh. Not even in a, in a Just private when message. I thought
3: traffic was the worst. i thought we were gonna get through this thing and be friends you got me can i tell you you just got me like i was really like what is it like is it the motor because i'm driving i was totally like is he gonna play back the noise he's been listening to you uh, got me that's that's, some trash right there
1: that's great i'll have you know uh dear listeners that never in my life have i known steve to just be speechless not have a a comment of any kind
3: i mm -mm, nope
1: we should we should mention. I was talking about you trash talking
3: on Facebook. I was totally ready to change the subject. The, yes.
1: One of the places you did that was in our brand new exclusive uh, CXMH oh. Unity community, our Facebook group that has been pretty cool so far.
3: It really has been fun, and it would be even more fun with more people. Absolutely. So bring yourself to the party.
1: Yeah. So in case you don't know, because we've never talked about it on the show quite yet, hmm. CXMH Unity—it's kind of community. It's all smushed together is a a Facebook group that we have started. It's an exclusive Facebook group, and we're both in there. A lot of the guests on the show are actually in there.
3: I would almost say most of the guests.
1: Oh, absolutely. I know A very uh, large majority. Sarah Fader's in there, Sarah Schuster's in there, Jason Michelli, Mike McHarg, Hannah Brencher, Mark Shelsky. Uh, Who else? Uh, All the ones that we're Facebook friends with, Gabe Howard. Yeah. So a lot of them. Yeah, you should. Yeah. And then people that support us. So here's what you do. You go on to cxmhpodcast.com slash support. It'll redirect you to our Patreon. And if you sign up to pay at least $1 a month.
3: Come on y'all, it's nothing.
1: You will get an invite. We'll send you an invite to it. And you'll be in there. You can ask questions. There's discussions each week about the episode. There's other discussions. People posting articles they've read related to faith or mental health. You know, sometimes the guests respond if you ask about things and uh you can toss ministry ideas or ask for advice in certain areas or you know, whatever it is. Uh or you can post a an insulting poll about who's gonna win a football game and then be embarrassed by it later because you lost.
3: Oh yeah, that backfired. Whatever. Yeah.
1: So you should go do that. Come join us. It's a lot of fun so far. We have people talking back and forth. You can talk to both of us, obviously. We'll respond. The guests will pop in and out. So uh, it's a lot of fun. You should do it for $1 a month. That's, I mean, come on.
3: It's fun stuff. Everybody loves community. Nobody likes to feel alone. You only get to listen to this if you're a regular listener once a week, unless you just listen to us on repeat. So, like, come hang out. It's just a natural extension of the podcast. So much fun.
1: Hey, this week, do you want to know about the episode? Yeah! Uh, this week, we got the chance to talk with Dr. Stacey Friedenthal. Dr. Friedenthal runs a website called Speaking of Suicide, where she blogs about suicide and things of that nature. She is a therapist, so she specializes in suicidology, dealing with suicidal clients, things like that. So there's a lot of great content on there. And she's the author of a new book, actually, called Helping the Suicidal Person. Uh, It's designed for helping professionals, so people in uh, social work or counseling or things like that. But there's a lot of good stuff in there, a lot of good ideas and themes that are applicable to those of us who aren't in that field. And so we talk through a lot of that. So it's a really good interview. Uh, she's great. Tells some of her personal story as well, which is pretty meaningful. So uh, you should definitely check it out. And there's a, there'll be a ton of resources in the show notes because we reference a lot of good stuff. So
3: Very cool. Super exciting.
1: All right. Well, hey, go join the Facebook group and uh, <laughs> listen uh, to this interview here.
3: <laughs> what? That's the worst segue ever. <laughs>
1: Hey, welcome back to the show. We're so excited today to be joined by Dr. Stacey Friedenthal. Dr. Friedenthal is a Denver psychotherapist, consultant, and associate professor at the University of Denver, the Graduate School of Social Work. She has a part-time private practice with extensive clinical experience in crisis and suicide prevention settings. She just had a book published, Helping the Suicidal Person, Tips and Techniques for Professionals, that came out in September 2017. And she focuses most of her research on suicide-related topics, as well as teaching a number of graduate-level courses. Stacey, how are you today?
2: Good. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.
1: Of course, of course. Our pleasure. Is there anything that you want to tell us a little bit about yourself other than that that fancy bio there that I just read?
2: <laughs> that was a pretty good bio. Well, so, okay, cool. uh, you
1: wrote it, and I kind of adapted it. So
2: Yeah, so I, I think that covered the main points.
1: Let me ask you right off the bat, why do you do what you do? You know, I I know that there's a chunk on your website about why you study suicide, but why why spend your life, you know, researching and talking about such a a, a heavy topic?
2: How long is this podcast?
1: <laughs> as long as you want it
2: to be. <laughs> it it could take days. No. Um gosh, there are a lot of different reasons. And, you know, the the most immediate reason is it's very important work, you know, and yeah. I, it, it's very meaningful. And I get a lot out of um talking with somebody who is ha- having suicidal thoughts, talking with somebody who's attempted suicide, but then also writing about it and doing research. And so I guess the next question is what makes it important and meaningful? Yeah. And I mean, obviously, it's important for, you know reasons that it would be important for anybody, you know, because a a life is at stake and it's very important work, but then it also has a personal, um, their personal motivations for me. And, you know, one personal motivation is that when I was in high school, there was a cluster of suicides, um, in a different city in Texas, but we heard about it. And then, suicide started happening in my city. And in my school, my sophomore year of high school, there were two suicides within five days of each other. Wow. And the, the first person who died by suicide, I didn't really know him well, I knew who he was, but I didn't know him. But the the second uh, one was a boy named Sippy, short for Cipriano. And he was a friend of ours and a friend of mine. And, um, I had been with him the night that he died. You wow. know, all, all of us were in my, my group because there had been a party. And so about an hour, maybe, I think about an hour, maybe two hours after the party, he killed himself. So, so, you know, that makes the topic very, um, important to me to have, have, had a friend die by suicide at the age of 15. Um, I was 15. He might have been 16 because it was towards the end of sophomore year. And and then I've known other people who have had suicidal thoughts and I've had suicidal thoughts in the past. And so it's just a very um, compelling topic for me. Yeah.
1: I was going to ask you some about your personal experience, if if you're willing to talk about that, because I know that you wrote a piece for the New York Times called A Suicide Therapist's Secret Past. Can you tell us a little bit about some of your personal experiences?
2: Sure. And the first thing I want to say is I did not write that headline. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Fair enough. But you wrote the article, I, right?
2: I did write the article, but I don't refer to myself as a suicide therapist, sure. which in a way sounds like someone who could be giving somebody therapy about how to yeah. die by suicide, which of course um, I'm on the opposite end of that spectrum. <laughs> um, well, I don't know that I want to go very in depth about it, sure. but but I, you know, I, I did start having suicidal thoughts at quite a young age around 12 and would have them on and off um, for many years. And then as I wrote in the New York times uh, essay uh I there was a an attempt in nineteen ninety five and in, in in a way, I mean, I, I hesitate to use this word because I don't want to like advertise a suicide attempt as a way to change your life, but in a way it was transformative for me. Um, because it really just kinda opened my eyes to the fact that I didn't really wanna die. I just yeah wanted to feel better.
0: You right. know, and,
2: and Subsequently, in my work with uh, clients who are having, you know, sometimes very intense suicidal thoughts, that's been a a big epiphany for them is to recognize that that it's they don't want to feel pain anymore. And if there were some other way to not feel pain besides dying, that they would go for that. Yeah. You know, and that's some of our work Is. Is coming up with ways that they can hurt less and stay alive
1: yeah so let me ask we do have some mental health professionals that listen to the show so we can talk some about your book but before we get quite there i do want to ask because a lot of the things that you write on uh, your website speakingofsuicide.com, is for friends and family right so you have articles about Things to say to someone who's suicidal, or things not to say to someone who's suicidal. So, do you have some some words of wisdom or some advice for folks out there who are listening, who they just know people who might be going through a suicidal crisis, or they think might be suicidal, or maybe they're you know a pastor, or a youth pastor, and they want to help the the people that they know. What starting point would you use for them? Because this is such a, a topic that so many people feel like is kind of out of the realm of understanding, right? Like, where do we even start? Mm
2: Mm-hmm, yes. And so my first piece of advice would be, don't panic. Hmm. You know, I I think a lot of people, when they hear the word suicide or when they hear somebody say something that even intimates suicidal thoughts, that they panic, you know? And, And so my first piece of advice would be, instead of panicking to try to understand, you know, and to yeah. to learn more about what the person is going through, what they're thinking, what they're feeling. Uh, I recently was on a Facebook um, exchange in a private group that I'm in. And I think it's okay for me to say this, even though it's a <laughs> private group, because I'm not going to reveal any details or, sure. you know, identifying details. Yeah. But basically someone was saying, I have a friend who says that she wants to kill herself in two months. And what do I do? Yeah. And a bunch of the responses were call 911. And I can't think of many things that would be worse yeah. than calling 911 for somebody who says they want to kill themselves
1: in two months. In two months, yeah. Yeah.
2: If they said, I want to kill myself in two minutes and I have a gun in my hand, yeah, call 911. <laughs> right. You know, but, and even then, I wouldn't say call 911 right away. You know, I would want to say, you know, I would want to try with, okay, can you put the gun down and go into a different room?
1: Right. And,
2: you know, and this is assuming we were on the phone. If we were in person, there would be a whole other assortment of issues to consider. But um but you know, if I was on the phone with someone and they said they had a gun in their hand and wanted to kill themselves, there are different paths to take before calling nine But definitely if someone's saying kind of abstractly or remotely, you know, in a in a, in the future that they want to kill themselves, calling nine is not gonna help.
0: Yeah.
2: And and you know what will help is listening. You mm. know and, and And I think a lot of people have this pressure to say the exact right thing, and and I need to think about whether those blog posts I have ramp up that pressure or ease it, you know, since I do have a post of 10 things not to say and 10 things to say. Um, But fundamentally, and I think I say this in both those posts, the most important thing isn't what you say, it's how you listen. Yeah. You know, so fundamentally – questions that invite the person to tell their story and and then to to really listen without jumping in with judgment or persuasion, you know, and, you know, because a lot of people will say things like, you don't really mean that, or don't you know you would go to hell if you killed yourself? You know, and, yeah. and they may have good intentions in saying that, but it can completely shut down the conversation.
1: Mm. So, so once say somebody is they start listening and you know they kind of get a grasp of what this person is going through, then the next the next step, I would guess you would say is to try to involve a mental health professional at, at some level, right
2: It depends on the context. Do you mean two friends?
1: Uh, two friends or, you know, because I know we have a lot of folks who work in ministry listening. If you're, you know, a youth pastor and somebody has come to you and, and was saying some of these things, you know, a teenager or something like that, you know, bar, bar forgetting all the, whatever rules your particular school or church has about, you know, the communication steps, what would you recommend is, is most
2: helpful? Sure. And I mean, I think age is important because if it's, Somebody who is an adolescent, then my recommendation would be different than someone who's, you know, middle aged, because somebody who's an adolescent, you kind of have a little more, a little more room to try to help them in terms of involving parents, involving the school and involving, as you're saying, mental health professionals. Whereas someone who's an adult, you may not even know who their parents are. They may not be connected with their parents. Their parents may have very little role in their life. And, you know, so you don't have the same connections to work with as you do with a young person. Yeah. I think, you know, with a young person, I mean, if the parents are not in a situation where they're abusing the child or, um, you know, toxic to the child in, in some way, the first thing would be to to tell the parents and and try to get them involved now unfortunately sometimes parents don't don't respond in a way that is constructive and healthy you know and and that's very hard when when that happens sometimes yeah. parents will say things like oh she just wants attention she doesn't right. really mean it you know sometimes parents won't remove lethal means from the home because they think that their child isn't really in danger. And, and this happens with firearms, you know, that, that parents leave loaded guns in the house. So, so the first thing would be, you know, to include the parents and to give a referral to mental health services with people in the ministry i think you know sometimes there's an aversion to including mental health services and yeah. i think that's so unfortunate because people in the ministry and people in mental health services can really be partners yeah and and it doesn't need to be all or nothing you know that either the person gets all their help from a minister or from a mental health professional it can be both
1: right Are there specific types of mental health professionals that you would say, you know, this is what you're looking for as far as knowing who who would work well with a suicidal client or things like that? Are there different uh, criteria that you would look for or anything like that?
2: Yeah. I mean, I actually have a post on my website, and I'm not sure if you've seen it, called How to Find a Therapist Who Doesn't Panic. Because, I have
1: that's actually where this question came from.
2: <laughs> oh, okay. Because it's not only friends and family who panic, there are therapists who panic, unfortunately. And so I think, you know, what's important to look for is um do, do they list working with suicidal people as a specialization? I mean, if they do them right away, that is a big clue that they're not going to overreact. But there are not very many therapists who do list suicidality as an area of specialization. So in that case, I would want to know what training have they received in working with suicidal individuals. Um, There's not very much training in graduate programs, which is dismaying. Yeah. You know, some people can get through an entire master's degree in, in social work, counseling or psychology or marriage and family therapy, you know, all those related fields, without learning how to assess suicide risk and how to help someone. So they're naturally going to be more scared because they don't have the skills and training. So I would want to know what training they've received in suicide assessment and intervention. And I would want to know what their philosophy is in working with suicidal individuals you know one philosophy one treatment philosophy is the um collaborative assessment and management of suicidality it's it's abbreviated as cams and as the name suggests it's very collaborative and uh you know so if if they say oh i use cams well right away that that shows you okay this person knows what's involved in working with someone who's suicidal and not overreacting and being collaborative so, but it's going to be few and far between the therapists who say that.
1: Yeah, that's, um, is that uh, David something? Am David I jokes. Right? Okay, yeah, I think there was an episode on uh, Jonathan Singer's podcast uh, about about that a while back, if I remember correctly. If there is, I'll put a link in the show notes. If not, there won't be one. So for for lay people or people who aren't a mental health professional, right, what are their what's the responsibility there right because I know that obviously we all want to help someone who's in a situation like that but there's also we don't want necessarily uh, this response of like it is our it is our singular goal and responsibility to save somebody's life right so what are the it's a terrible way of phrasing the question but I know you've written a post about kind of the limitations in helping someone who's suicidal right so what what are the kind of Boundaries, if you will of somebody's responsibility of helping someone else.
2: Oh, yeah, I think that's a really important question Because I think a lot of people feel responsible for keeping another person alive And yeah, that's that's a huge burden, you know, I mean, obviously We care about the people we love and we want them to stay alive and we you know We don't want anyone to die by suicide um who we love and care about or even people we don't know for that matter but for one person to keep somebody alive is is a huge expectation and as i wrote in that blog post you mentioned um i had some i had a i have a good friend but um i had you know about 20 25 years ago she came to my house and had made a suicide attempt which I didn't know at the time, but, uh, you know, after um, being at my house, I think maybe five or ten minutes, I could tell that something was wrong and she was holding her wrist and had um, attempted suicide by cutting her wrist. And Mm. I took her to an emergency room and she needed stitches and she did not want to be hospitalized. She was adamant that she didn't want to be admitted And the doctors said she didn't meet criteria for involuntary hospitalization because she no longer had suicidal intent. And so they talked to me about taking her home with me and removing every sharp object from the house, removing every medication from the house, removing anything that could be used as a ligature from the house. So like, you know, a belt or a tie for a robe. So I brought her home. And I mean I was like let me think I was probably about 27 years old which isn't that okay. young but still young and <laughs> I I hadn't been a mental health professional I mean I was a newspaper reporter at the time so I didn't have any training in how to approach this so I did you know she was in my house and I did go through and put everything in a I think if I remember correctly in a pillowcase And put it in the trunk of my car and locked the trunk. And, you know, then I went back inside and she stayed at my house. And she left maybe a couple days later. And I just felt so helpless that there was nothing I could do at that point. You know, she Mm -hmm. left my house. And and then I realized she could have left that night that we came home from the emergency room. You know, she could have left while I was in the bathroom. She could have left while I was talking to her. She could have gotten up and walked out the door. And so what I mean is that I'm not omnipotent, you know, and nobody is. So even if, if it's a parent who's staying with their child, watching their child every minute, they still have to go and do things, so right. you know if it gets to the point where somebody's feeling a hundred percent responsible for keeping someone alive, it's time to share that one hundred percent with other people. Yeah, and usually, if somebody is in that much danger, the that that needs to be shared with a professional. Yeah,
1: in a scenario like that, would you typically recommend you know an inpatient?
2: type setting as opposed
1: to an outpatient type setting?
2: You know, it's difficult. Like in my friend's case, if she had been involuntarily committed, I think that could have been very damaging for her. You know, I think it could have really impeded her recovery to have been involuntarily committed to a hospital. But then there are people, you know, who are committed to a hospital and then come back and say, you saved my life. You know, I wasn't in a rational state of mind, and I would have killed myself if I hadn't been protected so um but often hospitalization if if someone is so scared that they can't leave a friend or a family member alone without that person being in danger, then that usually is an indicator that there needs to be what in my field, we call a higher level of care. And that usually sure. would involve hospitalization.
1: Yeah. So um, before before I ask about the book, I caught something there that you, you mentioned you were a newspaper reporter when you were 27 and had no mental health training. How, what happened in between there? Like, how did you switch fields so kind of dramatically?
2: Ha, huh. I will tell you, but can I back up to something that we were just talking about? Absolutely, yeah, of course. Okay. And you can edit this if you need to. But I just <laughs> wanted to say that um I made the statement that if somebody can't leave a friend or family member in the room alone without that person being in danger, you know, then other people need to be involved. But I yeah. want to distinguish between that person really being in danger or the other person being afraid. You know, sure. because so when somebody is fearful for their loved one or friend or employee or church member, you know, whatever the case may be, they're fearful that the person will try to die by suicide. That doesn't mean the person's truly in danger. You know, fear and danger aren't always correlated. So I'm just saying that because, you know, being afraid doesn't necessarily mean that we need to, intervene in a way where the person's rights are taken away, you know, by calling the police and, you know.
1: Yeah, that's such a hard kind of thing to gauge, even for people who work in the mental health field. Do you have any, any, I don't know, ideas on how to kind of distinguish between the two for, for folks?
2: Well, it is really hard to gauge. And, you know, there's, there's a huge gray area. There's the, you know, there's one end of the spectrum where the person is clearly not in any danger at all because they're not even thinking of suicide. Right. So, and then you've got the other end of the spectrum where the person is intent on dying by suicide and is saying nothing is going to stop them. And even after people have tried to help, they're still rigid about dying by suicide. Those two extremes, it's easy to know what to do, right? It's the in between where things can get really murky and um unfortunately, you know, there is no clear-cut way to know for sure who's in danger of dying by suicide in the immediate future. There's actually yeah. been a couple studies that have come out, I think just in the last few months, maybe in the last year, that have found that mental health professionals' predictions of risk are only a slightly bit better than chance. Hmm. So flipping a coin can tell us almost as much as a professional risk assessment in terms of who's going to die by suicide. Hmm.
1: I wonder if because that's not a re- very reassuring piece of information. But I wonder if that's related to, like you mentioned, a lot of graduate schools not having any training in this area. I know I took a a course in suicidology, but it was an elective. So like, not everybody did. So I wonder if, you know, if we could get people going through graduate programs and things like that, more training, obviously, we would, we would at least hope that maybe that percentage would rise or that number would rise.
2: Yeah, and it certainly couldn't hurt, right? But I, right. I I need to look at those articles more deeply because two questions that come to mind for me are what assessments were they looking at? Like what method of assessment? Because I think they were right. looking at standardized risk assessments. And my other question so is- are not using the Columbia or anything like that? I think, see, this is where I'm not sure. I think they might have been using like this, some of the Beck instruments, like the scale for suicidal ideation. Okay. Yeah. But- It's been a while since I looked at that, so I need to look again. But the other piece of it is I would, I need to refresh my memory on how far out they're trying to predict suicide, because the further out you get, the more and more impossible it is. You know, human behavior just can't be predicted. Um, but when we're talking about, is this person going to die by suicide within the next 24 hours without intervention? I think people are more skilled at being able to say, okay, this person isn't in imminent danger. Then we've yeah. got the gray area and then we've got people who are clearly in imminent danger. But I think yeah. that, but, but then the trick is is you can't test that you can't say, okay, now let's go see who dies by su- Right. Right.
1: Hmm. That's interesting. Okay, so now we can I guess jump back to the question about how you got from being a newspaper reporter to being a, a suicidologist.
2: Yes. Yes. So I was a journalism major in college and I worked at the student newspaper at the University of Texas and University of Texas is very a very large university. So the student newspaper was very big. It was, you know, kind of a quasi professional endeavor. And then I had some internships in college. So when I graduated, I got a job at the Dallas Morning News in Texas. And I really, really liked journalism until I really, really didn't. (laughs) And, you know, it was kind of a love-hate relationship. And one of the things that I really didn't like about it was that I was on the wrong side of the helping equation. In my experience. And by that, I mean, I was working with people in the midst of crisis because a lot of my newspaper articles were going to the scene, say, of a courthouse shooting and interviewing witnesses or going to the emergency room after the courthouse shooting. And this really did happen. There was a courthouse shooting that I um, covered, going to the emergency room after the courthouse shooting and interviewing family members and friends of people who had been shot. And You know, they were this, they were in the midst of a traumatic event and I was just interviewing them so that I could fulfill the curiosity of readers. I wasn't interviewing them to try to help them. I didn't know how to help them. And that really wore on me that I was really what I felt like was, I felt like I was trespassing in, in their, in their tragedy really and not with, good aims, you know, and and yeah. that came up a lot in my work. Um and, and in the work I witnessed of others. One night there was a, a man at a shoe store in one of the cities outside of Dallas and he had taken customers hostage and he had a gun and if I remember correctly he had just learned that day that he was HIV positive. And this was in the 1990s when that was much more of a, a death sentence, right? You know, than, yeah. than it is now. I think that's what had happened. So we were making calls from the city desk and the police said, stop calling because you're putting these hostages' lives in danger. You're upsetting him. You're agitating him when you call and you talk to him. We need to be the only ones who talked to him. And one of the reporters said to me, I don't care. I want to get the story. Wow. And that, that was very upsetting to me. You know, and I, I was like, you need to stop calling. And he said, the police can't tell me what to do. You know, hmm. freedom of press. And so, so that, you know, was one reason that I didn't, Stay in journalism, and and really, it's a segue to how I got into social work. But there were other reasons I didn't stay in journalism too, and one was that, um, I mean, there were more pragmatic reasons. One was that I got carpal tunnel syndrome and tendinitis from all the writing, and Gosh. just things like that. But but that really, you know, illustrates why then I did go into social work. And and in my admissions essays, you know, my application essays. Um, I did write about that, about feeling so helpless and about wanting to be able to help but not knowing how, and yeah. that I wanted to know how.
1: That's awesome. So this new book you have, Helping the Suicidal Person, Tips and Techniques for Professionals, how did this book come about? Did you set out on purpose to write this book? I mean, I'm sure it's a culmination of many years of, of study for you. So tell us a bit about this book.
2: Sure, sure. Um I did. I did set about to write it intentionally and really I wanted to fill a need that I had for myself too. I I looked for a book like this and I couldn't find one. And what I wanted was a book that had really concrete tips about, okay, I've got somebody sitting in front of me who wants to die by suicide. What are some good things to do? And in looking at all these different books I mean, basically, what the book is that I just wrote is a book that saves people from having to read about thirty different books and two hundred different articles right. maybe even right. more than two hundred, probably well over two hundred actually so um so in in looking at different books, I found you know one book talked about things from one perspective, another talked about what to do from a different perspective, but there wasn't integration, you know so okay, so This book talks about how to help somebody using cognitive therapy. This book over here talks about how to help somebody using CAMs. That book over there talks about helping somebody with behavioral principles. All three of those books are very useful books, but they are omitting things from each one is omitting things from the other two. So I wanted to bring it all together into one place of the different things that you can do when you are working with somebody who who might be thinking of suicide, in which case the assessment piece of the book is important. And then somebody who you know is thinking of suicide, and that's where the intervention techniques are important. Yeah, and that's one of the things that
1: I think catches my eye about this book is it has practical things like safety planning and assessment and treatment planning and things like that. But the first bit of it, has to do with, you know, having professionals examine their own personal experiences and their own thoughts and biases around suicide. Why is that so important?
2: Well, it's one of the competencies when you look at the published list of competencies for what people need to be able to work effectively with someone who's at risk for suicide. um, I think it's competencies put out by the American Association of Suicidology, but um, I'm kind of blanking on that right now. Yeah. But even before I knew it was one of the competencies um it was something I was coming across in in other literature too and that's just that we're going to bring biases to whoever we talk to who's thinking of suicide and there's no way for those biases to not affect the work that we do it's an in, it's inevitable and in inescapable that we'll have biases but if we know about them and we're aware of them, then we won't be operating from them without realizing it. Do you see what I mean?
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's such a huge part for all of us. I mean, obviously, mental health professionals, you know, talk about that a lot. But for everybody to realize kind of their own, where they're coming from, their viewpoints, their perspectives, especially in a topic as important as suicide, you know, even if you're in ministry, or you're just a friend, you know, to kind of pause and think about your own reactions, uh, I think is is really important. So I love that.
2: Well, and I think also what's important is I'll have people say to me, especially my students, will say, well, I'm not biased. I'm neutral about suicide. And there's no such thing. Because if yeah. you're neutral about suicide, that's a bias. You know, because if mm. you're not against suicide, that's a bias. If you're not You know, for the right for people to die by suicide, then that's a bias. There's, it's impossible to be neutral because neutrality itself is a bias when it comes to suicide. Not with all topics, but with suicide, it is.
1: Yeah. Well, hey, thank you so much. If you want to connect with Dr. Friedenthal, you can find her on social media at S. Friedenthal or on Facebook at Speaking of Suicide or at Speaking of Suicide. Dot .com if you want to check out the book you can find it on Amazon or at helpingthesuicidalperson.com if you want to connect with me you can find me at robertvor on social media or at robert vorecom or you can find Steve who's not here at austin.com or at on social media at Steve Austin. Uh, Stacy any closing words for our listeners today
2: Not really just thank you for having me
1: Of course thank you for spending some time with us today can't wait to read the book
2: well, I will tell you that the table of contents has 89 tips because each tip is its own little chapter, and yeah. I like to say that just reading the table of contents is educational.
1: Yeah, I've looked. I know that that's on the the website there, and I've actually looked through that some, which is part of why I'm so excited to read it because that table of contents looks great. I mean, I I have probably too many books on suicide because it's an area of passion, so to have them all kind of like you mentioned, in one place is going to be a phenomenal resource for a lot of people.
2: Well, great. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Well, thank you
1: so much for joining us. I hope you have a fantastic rest of your day.
2: Thank you. You too.
0: Thanks for listening to the CXMH Podcast. You are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.